Welcome everybody back to the Rooted and Edified show. I'm your host, Caddy Elias, and you are joining us for a special episode today, A House of Addictions, Testimony of Monique Dusan. And she is our special guest today, so let's give her a happy dance. Before we introduce our special guest even more, we have a few podcast reminders for you. This podcast is sponsored by and is a part of Beautifully Rooted, which is a Christian mental health and education corporation. And this show, The Root and Edified Show, is a fun-loving, no-facade, Bible-believing, conservative, Christian worldview show for both men and women who want to hear about real-life testimonies, who want to discuss interesting topics, who want to discuss theology, and also hear talents that are within the church. We want to help encourage you in growing in your walk with Christ and also getting more mature and growing deeper in that relationship. If you're excited and you want to dive deeper into what we're doing here, maybe you want to help support us or you want to volunteer in some way, please visit our website, which is www.beautifullyrooted.com, which is spelled B-E-Y-O-U, and we would love to hear from you. I am so excited to introduce our special guest, Monique Dusan, and we're just so happy that you're here with us. Thank you so much for sharing what I already know will be an amazing testimony of what God can do. Just to let you know a little bit more about Monique Dusan, she is the co-founder and president of the Center for Biblical Unity, which is an amazing organization that you're going to have to check out because she fights CRT. She does everything possible that she possibly can to stand for biblical justice, which is so important. She's an amazing woman with an amazing testimony. And Monique, would you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Hey, well, good to be here. Thanks for having me. My name is Monique Dusan, as you've already mentioned. I am the co-founder and president. I co-founded the Center for Biblical Unity with my ministry partner, Krista Bontrager. And together we really work to bring a correct understanding of justice. What is biblical justice? And we seek to have safe and sane conversations around the topics of race, justice, and unity. How do we have conversations on these things from a completely biblical and historically Christian perspective. I was raised in South Los Angeles. I grew up there until, gosh, I was about 16 and then moved a little farther north to the San Fernando Valley and lived in North Hollywood until I moved to South Africa in 2014. And I spent about four and a half years on the mission field in Cape Town, South Africa, in a subset of Cape Town called the Cape Flats, working with youth, families, and teachers in the mental health space. I returned from the mission field in 2018 and started the Center for Biblical Unity in 2020. I do have a background in social service. I originally studied sociology at Biola University and then from there went into working with youth in the foster care systems and things like that and eventually moved over to homeless services and have basically done everything possible in the realm of homeless services here in Los Angeles. That's amazing. You went from South LA to South Africa and back. So that's amazing. Do you have anything that you wanted to let us know about the Center for Biblical Unity, your new book? and how people can get involved with your organization? Yes, well, you can find out more about the Center for Biblical Unity by going to centerforbiblicalunity.com 
online, just check out our website. You can see our new curriculum there called Reconciled. It actually came out in the summer of 2021. It is a six-week study where we look at our unity and reconciliation in Christ. How are we reconciled as believers? There's a lot of conversation happening in culture right now that says that we need to participate in something called racial reconciliation. Well, we're asking the question, is racial reconciliation a biblical concept? If it is, what do we do with it? If it's not, what do we do with it? Personally, I do not see racial reconciliation as being a biblical concept. I see us being reconciled in Christ as we read in 2 Corinthians 5. The work of reconciliation is reconciling sinful hearts to a holy God. We see in Ephesians that when we are reconciled to God, when we have become children of God, that makes us brothers and sisters. And so I approach this and my ministry partner, we approach this together from the position of we are reconciled. Now, how do we move forward together? How do we have hard conversations? How can we talk about things that impact us as believers and things that impact us that may be along ethnic or racial lines? That is Reconciled. You can follow us on Facebook. Just go to Center for Biblical Unity. You can search us there. You can also search us under the same name on Instagram or Biblical underscore Unity on Twitter. And you're on YouTube, right? Yes. Together, Krista and I co-host a podcast every Saturday night, and it's called All the Things. So if you go on YouTube and search for All the Things show, you'll find us. If you are on any of your local podcasts or streaming services, we are there under All the Things show. Perfect. Thank you so much. You have such amazing stories. I have heard some of them and they all point to the power of God and how much he has worked in your life. And I think today we'll kind of focus on one aspect of the story of your childhood, growing up in a household with addictions and how the Lord pulled you and your family through. And I just can't wait to hear that. We are really ready to get more familiar with your story. And would you please share with us what childhood looked like for you and your family and tell us about the journey you walk through. Yes. Yeah, so I, gosh, I'm the oldest of four children. So I, it's myself and I have a brother and two other sisters. I am, like I said, I'm the oldest and then I have a brother. And then there's a gap. So my brother and I came first. When I was 12 years old, my father died. I didn't really have a relationship with him. I didn't know him or anything like that. But when I was 13, a relationship that my mom was in resulted in the pregnancy of my oldest baby sister. And then 22 months later, my last sibling came along. Being the oldest, I was, and I think more of my personality even just lends toward being the responsible child. And so a lot of my upbringing was being the responsible one. Like I could walk home with my brother. My mom taught me at an early age, how do you take care of yourself? How do you, you know, if you get in trouble and I'm not here, what should you do? How can you get to safety quickly? So these are the kind of things that my mind was generally circulating around, like, how do I keep us safe if my mom isn't here? And my two younger siblings, their father was deeply involved in drugs. He actually was one, probably one of the biggest drug dealers in our area. 
And it, he didn't start out using right away, to my understanding. He actually was busy selling, which was profitable for our home at the time. But then when he began to use and things like that, that's when we saw a definite shift in what was happening in our home. The actual addiction part, I think that impacted us the most was his use of heroin, some use of alcohol. He definitely, I believe, had an alcohol addiction, but it wasn't to the problem or the level in which we saw with his drug use, which led to all kinds of things from drug calls being made into our home and not being able to answer the phone sometimes or knowing that if the phone rang and then it went silent and then it rang in like a minute later, then I wasn't supposed to answer the phone. There were just different ways in which communication happened in our home to let me know or to let my siblings know or my mom know these are the things that are happening, even if those things were unspoken. I think those are some of the impact. Another impact is the understanding of being responsible, the understanding of needing to protect my siblings. I think that was a thought that continued to flow through my mind. And then as his addiction grew, he became abusive toward my mom. And so how do I, you know, stay safe? What does that mean to call 911? What does that mean to protect my mom or to protect my siblings in the midst of that? And, you know, my mom is definitely strong. She He's definitely someone who instilled strength in me. And yes, I believe that some of the strength that was instilled came from a problematic childhood, but I can look back at my childhood and say, you know what? My mom is the one who really taught me like, hey, no, we're not going to be afraid. We're going to keep going. We're going to move forward. Okay, this happened. How do we deal with it and stay strong? So she was still dealing with her stuff and still trying to help raise you in coping and in thinking the right way. Yes, yes. But I also think the age gap between my oldest sibling from the second set, because I was 13 years older, I transitioned into being more of a parentified child than just having this straight sibling relationship. It was a parentified child type of relationship where I could take both of my siblings on the bus and we could go here and we do that. Or I drop them at daycare or I'd make sure that they were bathed and fed or things like that. While my mom also processed her own stuff or was working. She worked a lot during my teenage years. I think what you are mentioning is very, very, very common for kids that grow up in homes with addictions. That sense of being older, that maturity that develops. Can you walk us through what day-to-day life might have looked like for you? Day-to-day life could look different every day. It definitely depended on whether my stepfather was home or whether he was in jail or whether he was staying with a friend. It just depended when he was out of the house Our childhood looked pretty normal. I would go out, I could ride my bike, I would have chores, we would pile up in my mom's bed, we would all sit down and watch TV and things like that. I think when he wasn't there, childhood looked as normal as it could. When he was there, there was definitely this sense of eggshell walking you know, of not knowing what could possibly set him off. When he was sober, he definitely was a different person. When he was sober, he was nice. 
I don't have anything uh, very negative to say about him as a sober individual. It was definitely difficult when he was high or intoxicated. You never knew really what you would get and you never knew what you were coming home to. An example of that is one day I came home from school and I want to say I had been about sixth grade and I came home and I came home with my brother and everything was gone from our home. The microwave, the TV, the washer, the dryer, like how do you get a washer and dryer? You know, how do you steal and pawn a washer and dryer? Well, apparently in a grocery cart, that's how you do it. The neighborhood was aware of his issues and yet, unfortunately, growing up in in South LA, people keep to themselves that the wording of that's not my business. That is exactly what a lot of that was. It's not my business. You know, you taking a washing machine and dryer down the block in a shopping cart. That's not my business. That's what I mean by saying you don't know what you're going to come home to. Not knowing that I was going to come home to an empty house aside from the couch and bed, all of the appliances being gone. I definitely think that time frame that I'm guessing that it was, definitely there was this underlying theme of that's their business. I don't get involved in domestic violence. I don't get involved in abuse. I don't get involved in any of those kind of things. And I think we saw the ripple effect of it. That definitely does seem a little bit different now. Yeah. I mean, I hope so, at least. I haven't worked in that space in a long while, but I I definitely hope that there's been shift in movement into more community involvement, or at least people knowing their neighbors and having a sense that someone else has your back, that you don't have to walk this road alone. Yeah. And I think that there's more awareness now that domestic violence is wrong and that addictions is an important issue, not just something that we kind of hide away. I think a lot of adults now that grew up in that household and a lot of children that might be going through it now definitely can relate to what you're talking about. Something that's very common with households where there's addictions and when there's abuse and domestic violence and those things is that the kids develop this hypervigilance this extra sense, extra sensitivity, which actually turns out to be anxiety, but it serves a purpose to help them cope when they're little because it helps them keep alert for what you're talking about. You never know what you're going to expect. So one of the things that children do in a very wise way and certain in a certain aspect is they learn how to recognize everything and take a survey of their surroundings completely. So that way, if there's a grimace on their face, if there's a wrinkle in their brow, a furrow, if there's anything that's about to go down, they want to make sure that they're prepared prepared and aware. Did you notice that, that hypervigilance, that extra sensitivity, noticing everything around you? Oh, yes. Like, (laughs) I used to memorize license plates just in case I was kidnapped in a way. Like, I think it's not humorous, but it's interesting to know or to notice how a young mind thinks and what becomes of importance Still today, like I recognize this in me today, like I am always aware of what's happening. I'm always aware of my surroundings. I can still today look at a license plate one time and memorize it. Wow. Yeah, hypervigilance. It's a bit of something that probably drives my ministry partner crazy because I can notice everything and I can pick up on everything and I'll ask her questions. Did you see that guy right there? And she'll be like, no, what guy? No, this guy right here. This is not safe. We need to go. Did you feel like you learned how to read people? Yes. And their body language? Body language, smells, different scents that waft by to a degree can let me know there's someone else here. I know that can sound strange, but if I am alone, I can pick up on, well, that's food, but that's not. I listen very well. So if there's a rustle in the bush where most people would either just ignore it, not hear it, I'm wondering, okay, wait, what's that? Yeah, 
I'm just very hyper vigilant. And I feel like it's just now a piece of who I am. And I can tell though, at certain times in my life where it wasn't as hyper or as bad. And then there've been other times in my life where it's been extremely high. Some of you guys may not know, or you may know that I am a licensed clinical social worker. When we talk about anxiety, it serves a purpose as a child because it helps you protect you from getting abused or getting your brothers and sisters out where you need to, when you need to, and in time and things like that. The difficulty is just sometimes it's hard to turn off later. So we have to learn how to balance that out. But really, you would be really surprised at how many people are motivated with that anxiety and how actually those people who develop that ability to survey their surroundings and to pick up on everything that's going on, every grimace, every body language, they become really empathetic in many ways, often, and they become very good friends because they can tell what's going on with you and they're going to check in a lot of times. So there are some very positive things that come out of that. It's just figuring out how to balance that out so that we're not anxious all the time. Did you notice any changes in your mom when your stepdad was there or not? Yeah, gosh, it's a really good question. I think in her parenting, I think with the presence of him in the house, I would say just like any spouse mate, you know, you want to make sure that you give enough attention to your husband and yet still offer enough attention to the kids and make sure that everyone feels like they have enough attention or are receiving enough attention. I am not married. I've never been married. So that's a balance that I haven't had to juggle. I don't have kids, so I don't have to juggle that spouse-child balance or spouse-child home situation. But I could see that there was a balancing act of How do I serve him and keep him happy, so to speak, and then still to a degree, make sure that the kids are okay. I think when you're the spouse of someone who is an addict, the juggle is constant because there's never really a moment of peace. When you have an addict who is abusive, the parameters of abuse and what happens within the confines of abuse is a juggling act all by itself. Now you throw in the realm of addiction and it's a constant hypervigilance. It's a constant looking around to make sure are the kids safe? Is the house safe? Am I safe? What is his emotional state right now? Is he high? I think that she juggled a lot in trying to make sure that we were protected, but she was also just doing her best. I could see the push and pull in her in trying to do her best as a mom. And I think on the side of the child, still having a lot of questions and a lot of my own emotions that I would later have to struggle through. Did you have any particular dual feelings that were going on? Any particular feelings that came up towards your mom? Or were you able to have empathy for her? Or because of the situation you were going through, did you have complex emotions, multiple emotions going on at the same time? Yeah, I would say it was probably multiple. Like I've always loved my mom, but there were times where I definitely didn't understand, was very angry, couldn't understand why in my child's mind, and I would say even in my adult mind, like let's just be real, there was a choosing of him over me or a choosing of him, even in the midst of his addictions and all of that over my siblings and I. And so, yes, there were definitely a lot of complex emotions and there were complex emotions toward him as well. And looking at, man, he's really cool sometimes. We do have cool moments, but then there's the larger situation where he's yelling and swearing and throwing things and hitting. And 
not sharing foods, there was this dual thing of, man, I really like him when he's just like this. But oftentimes his addiction outweighed anything that was potentially positive about who he was. And did you realize that at the time or were you feeling mostly just affection towards him? No, there was not a lot of affection at the time at all. And I was quite clear. I am a very outspoken person. I was outspoken as a child. You know, I think that that added to the tension in our home because when, I mean, I'm very controlled now. I definitely know, like, I probably shouldn't say this, but being 12, 13, 14 years old, I was, I feel like I was extremely clear, but I was also extremely mouthy. If he would say something that I didn't like, I would have you know, clearly let him know, I don't like this. This is why I don't like this. And who are you to tell me anything? And so again, that added, I think, to my mom's stress because now she has the addict, but she also has this child who will rise up like a mama bear when it comes to protecting my siblings, either in school with friends or with teachers. I didn't let you talk to me any kind of way. It's funny because that's something that my mom instilled in me. You don't let people talk to you any kind of way. So when he came along, thinking he could talk to me any kind of way. It was like oil and water. Do you think you had a clear understanding of the depth of the problem that your stepdad had? No, not, not at all. I knew it was drugs. I knew it was alcohol. I had a lot of judgments about him. But to say that I understood the depth of addiction or the depth of, you know, alcoholism or any of these things, the, the depths of an abusive marriage, I didn't understand all that. I only understood what I could see at the moment. And I, being that young, it's like, I don't know if I have clear understanding. I just, I understood the impact it had on me. But you clearly understood that he had addictions. How did you know that he was going through addictions and he was on heroin? Oh, conversations with my mom. He had track marks. It wasn't hidden. And there were some distinct situations that I either overheard between he and my mom speaking or my mom speaking with a friend or things like that, that it just, it wasn't a secret, at least to me. Did any of you know Christ yet? Were any of you introduced to God? Any of you were believers yet? No, oddly enough, my grandmother, when I was young, would take me to church with her, but that stopped when I was about seven or eight. And then I didn't go to church again until I was in North Hollywood and was about 15. My family's relationship, familial relationship with my mom's ex-husband, it started when I was about, gosh, 11. And so from about 11 until I was 15, so those four, four and a half years, I was just relating to him with no understanding of the scriptures at all. When I got into church and started my own relationship with Jesus, I mean, it took a lot of discipleship. It took a lot of prayer and things like that. By the time that I was really at a place of understanding how I should treat him because of who Jesus is and what the scriptures tell me I should do, I was out of the house. So I never really had a time to interact with him from the position of being a believer. Navigating childhood, obviously, it's, it's pretty tough sometimes. It's not always a white picket fence for many of us. What do you think was your saving grace as a child? What helped you pull through to get through your days? When I got into church, it was two of my youth leaders in particular who would 
pick me up and take me to their house or who would just let me talk and talk and talk and cry and express or explain what was happening in my world and in my life. And they would pray with me and they would offer other thoughts into my situation. Before then though, especially when I was about 12, 13, I would literally just leave my house. We would usually have arguments and I would walk out door slammed and I would go and I would just hang out at the park. We had a park right at the end of my block and I would hang out there. I would swing and run or just zone out in an environment that wasn't the house. And it would allow me the space to kind of calm down so that I could go back and that I could be in a different posture or attitude of mind when I arrived back home. All I can attribute that time to was God's grace. It was just his daily grace of giving me what I needed. I think my siblings, especially my two younger siblings, provided just a space for me to be different. They gave me something else to focus on. They gave me a lot of joy or they contributed to the joy that I was able to find in having them in the house. And so but it was really just the grace of God that I would say that was just with me daily. I think it's so important to recognize that even though you didn't know the Lord yet, He was still providing grace and still protecting you and still making a way for the safety of your family. Yeah. If you were to look back at the timeline of your story, can you see any moments when God specifically was intervening when maybe you didn't realize it, but He was really at work, either in you or in your family situation or your family members. Can you see his hand in any of it when you look back now as a believer? Yeah, I definitely can. Part of the problem when you are with someone who is wrapped up in drugs and they go from being a provider or a solicitor of a substance and then bringing that money into the house to actually being a user of their own product is definitely the income level. At one moment, you're doing okay because you're bringing in the money, but now you're using your own substance. Now you actually owe someone. And when things became extremely difficult in regards to finances and you know what did it look like for my mom to feed four kids? What did it look like to have to pay the electric bill and the light bill and daycare and a car note and, 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 and I could see the Lord's hand providing for us. There were times, and I, I'm pretty sure that this is, you know, public knowledge, or I've said this publicly. And if I haven't, mom, when you watch this, I'm sorry, but there have been, you know, there were times when we didn't have electricity. There were times when we didn't have gas. Even in the midst of that and living in the midst of that, when I think about that time now as an adult, I can say, wow, look at God's hand when he did this. There has never been a time when God's hand and grace wasn't there. My mama's hood. So she, when, when they would turn off the gas, she could go back out there and turn it on. And that's not a skill that everybody has. Even, even in the small things, and it's like, I can joke about it now, but even in the small things, when people would say, well, here's some money for this, or when we would be able to get food from a pantry, or when somebody would help her out with food or whatever, the Lord's hand, even in the midst of the chaos was still clearly there. It's hard when you're in the midst of the storm to see any calm or to see any hope, but 
when you step outside of it. And now I'm outside of it a number of years. And I can say, oh, look at God's hand at this. Look at God's hand here. Just in his provision for us, his protection over us. Absolutely. When you were younger and going through all of these things, would you have wanted somebody to step in, become a mentor to you, maybe when your mom was dealing with her own things and she was having trouble tending to you in that way? Would you have wanted somebody to walk alongside you and nurture you in that way? Toward the end of their relationship and toward the end of my actually living in my home with my mom in church, there were a few youth leaders, two very, very specific youth leaders. Um, one who I'm still connected to today, who is still just such a dear part of my heart. That mothering and mentoring came through there. I learned so much about prayer and about what it means to, or what it could potentially mean to be a daughter, to go on vacation and go as a family and things like that. The first family vacation I went on was with a different family. And so I'm thankful because the Lord did provide those mentoring roles, especially when I was about 17. So 17, 18 years old, those roles did step in and it helped me to do things like get a job. The first real job that I got was at State Farm. And I received that job because my mentor was connected with someone and, you know, was able to tell me about this job so that I could go on the interview. I can't, I can definitely see the Lord's hand. I see how he brought people into my life to help me navigate a lot that was missing. I went to college because there was a mentor there because there was someone to speak into my life and say, hey, I think this is possible for you. My church family at the time was really my family, not perfect, but definitely adopted me and stepped into a huge gap that was in my life. And what a testimony to how important mentors can be and how discipleship is so important and can be so helpful and what really points to the healing of Christ and how they had their hand in that. Do you think you would have received that when you were younger if it was available realistically? You know, I think when I was younger, I don't, I'm, gosh, I longed for it. I did. And I, I remember my sixth grade teacher had no clue of what was happening in my life or my world, but was just very involved. And she took such good care of her students and took the time to invest in us and have sleepovers and all kinds of things. She really instilled in me the fact that I could speak publicly and got me involved in public speaking. And here you are now. Right. She got me involved in poetry from different Black writers and Black thinkers. She was a mentor. You know, oddly enough, I am still connected to her through Facebook. So I'm super grateful for her role in my life. One of the reasons why I'm asking those things is because I'm thinking that there's probably some other young people who are going through a very similar situation as you did, and some other family members who are in addictions or the spouse of a person in addictions, and somebody else is noticing. They know Christ, they're noticing, and they're just a little reserved on stepping in, walking alongside that young person, introducing themselves, or getting involved in any way. Would you recommend that that person does check in with that young person or the family member? And do you have any advice for that person on what might help them to be received better? Gosh, and again, another good question. I would say, one, if you 
choose to do it prayerfully, understanding that being involved in the lives of people who are connected to addicts is extremely complex. There are a myriad of emotions and the whole push and pull or anxiety around relationships, just the the dynamics of relationship can be taxing and difficult. And yes, young people need people in their lives who will say, hey, I see you. Hey, even in the midst of this very difficult situation, you're seeing your love. This isn't going to be the end. You'll be able to make it. Keep going. Don't give up. Today may be hard, but tomorrow may not be. Or life won't always be hard. To speak the hope and the love of Christ into their lives, that is so important in the life of a young person or in the life of a person who is struggling with an addict in their life in some capacity whether they're a child, teenager, young person, young adult, or, you know, an older spouse. How do I deal with the complexities of being in relationship with an addict? Also, I would say though, if you choose to go down that road and speak into the life of a person who is in relationship with an addict, make sure that you have resources. What are the places that you can refer that person to that where they can receive professional help? If you are not a professional, that isn't a role that I would advise for you to take on. There are places that offer professional help with that for a reason. I would also say that if you are a professional to maintain boundaries, referring them to a place for professional help is still the recommended route. Now, if you can pick a kid up or help a mom out once a week, twice a week or whatever, that support is always needed. And I would say it's probably always appreciated. The other thing I would say is that in doing good and wanting to do good and wanting to help or support the person who's connected to the addict, you also have to remember that many addicts, especially those who lean toward being more violent, can want to hold those people who are connected to them. Again, it's all about prayer and really understanding how God would lead so that the safety of the person connected to the addict is also understood and thought about. We don't want to step into a situation with a family member of an addict and we're like, hey, let me, you know, pick you up and I'll just take you out for a couple hours and we'll just go have fun. That may not always be seen as the biggest help that could to the addict be seen as a threat. And so we want to make sure that we are, and this is why I say having professional help is always important. We never want the addict to now become not irritated. That's not necessarily the right word. Be triggered. Yes. Triggered. Thank you. And to think that things are now becoming threatening for their existence, because that can double down on the person connected to the addict. Another thing I was thinking about right now is that sometimes when families are in really tough situations and there's tough characters that are going through addictions and a lot of different things, sometimes our go-to is to try to soften the child and open them up about their emotions and their feelings and share everything with me and how do you feel about that, which makes sense when you think about the typical idea of a therapeutic world instead of my black couch type of thing, but actually sometimes it's not always the best if you cannot close that up. So that's where sending them to a professional helps and making sure that they're able to survive. Because if you open them up completely 
and now they're open wound, but you're sending them back into a really tough character situation. They need to figure out how to toughen up again, and then they get sometimes get a little resistant. What I love is your teacher was impactful to you just by forming a relationship and caring and reminding you that you're not forgotten, that you're valuable and important, and she never went into any of these things with you. But just the fact that she cared, she developed a relationship with you that was appropriate, she reminded you you're not forgotten and that you're valuable, and had care for you, made an impact for you, and also the relationships that you had later with your mentors who really dove in deep. So I love that reminder that just reminding people that they matter, that they're valuable, that you care, even if you're not diving into these things, it can make a significant impact. Imagine if you were surrounded by many people, all your teachers and all the people around you who are telling you the same thing. Imagine how helpful that could probably have been. And praise God that you have people around you like that now. And, and your family, you have a pretty good relationship with your family and you yeah, guys I love my family. Yeah, we were just all together at Christmas. We had a great time. You know, we still, we are who we are with all of our quirks and things like that. But what family isn't? I'm definitely grateful for where God has brought us as a family and where I can see his hands at specifically and how we've grown. And yeah, he's done a good thing. If we move forward to now... Praise God that you're a loving, hardworking, beautiful, amazing woman of God. You really are. Um, that you lead so many oh, people thanks. in the pursuit of biblical justice and biblical thinking. As an adult now, do you feel healed from this piece from your past? I think emotional trauma is very different than, gosh, like scraping my knee. If I go outside, I fall, I scrape my knee, it might take a couple of days and then, you know, at least it's scabbed over. And then, you know, a couple more days, it's still kind of sort of move and things like that. But eventually I am not going to probably even remember, especially if I did it as a child, like I can have a scar on my, my knee, but the pain is no longer there. And I'm not constantly thinking about it and wanting to wear a bandaid or things like that. It's funny. There's a, a line in the movie, the blind side, where the husband is telling Sandra Bullock's character that Big Mike is like an onion. Like you peel off a layer, but then you get another layer and you peel off a layer. I kind of think healing is like that. Are there some things that I can definitely look back at and say, yeah, I don't even remember like that. That's, that's fine. Like we're good. Like I don't, I don't have any emotion about that at all. Sure. But there are things where I'm like, wow, you know, this is something that may cause my heart a little bit of grief forever. And it doesn't mean that it's a grief that will take me out. It's not something that I mourn uncontrollably or something that gives me uncontrolled emotions or things like that. But sensitive areas in my heart do exist. And I think that that is also part of God's grace because it reminds me that I need to be compassionate, that I need to also realize that people aren't perfect, that other people have things going on. I'm not always good at that. I think the sensitive areas in my heart help me to understand others a little bit better, help me to be more present with people at times. Don't always do it right. Don't always do it well. But I don't know that this concrete idea of I am healed and we'll never think about this. We'll never have any emotion ever about it or anything. There'll never be an ache. I don't know that that's realistic. Can you tell us what was your healing journey like? What helped you along that journey to get some healing? And where did God fit into all that? Gosh, I think that the journey has been long and many people have spoken into different parts and different things like that. I would say the largest amount of healing 
in this narrative has come in the last four years, actually, after me coming home from South Africa. I didn't realize how hypervigilant I was until I moved home from South Africa. I had been attacked on the mission fields a couple of times. Like there were some things that had happened. And in coming home, I came home extremely hypervigilant. In therapy, what I began to understand is that, hey, I was already hypervigilant. And then I went to South Africa and some things happened. I became even more hypervigilant as I was able to process South Africa, other things also came forward that helped to heal the parts of me that were either cast aside that I didn't want to think about or anything like that. So I would say therapy definitely helped me along that road in the last four years being connected with my ministry partner and her family. And again, God just grafting me in to a family in South Africa, when I lived there, I was connected to a family. And so I would say three strategic times over the course of my life, the Lord has kind of grafted me into family and has shown me um, each one of those times what it means to actually be family. I've learned something different and unique in each one of those times, but being with Krista and her family has offered up something completely different and has healed a lot of, you know, things that were present because of childhood experiences. So gosh, I would say the Lord's hand is present every day, mostly in ways that I am always unaware of usually. Um, But I would say in the tangible ways, the provision of family, the provision of a therapist who understood and was able to um, work with me in in some of my hypervigilance and anxiety issues and things like that. What a message of hope and a reminder for everyone to keep on going. That while while the Lord is providing grace for you when you didn't even know it, and the Lord was strategically putting people into your lives and also probably working in your mom too, that she would decide to leave this relationship. All this timeline that the Lord had and your starting of healing and developing healthy relationships and growing to know Christ and all these things, and yet he's still working and how he's worked so much in the past four years. What a reminder to keep on going. Don't think that if you haven't arrived to a certain place yet or you haven't seen the Lord work in a particular way that you're expecting that he's not working and that he won't significantly work in the years that come. Amen, amen. And you know, when you talk about hope, I can look at my mom from when she started in her relationship and I can look at her today. Today, she is a Christ follower. Praise God, praise God. You know, she's not the person that she was then. She's a new creation. Yeah. Does that mean that she doesn't still have struggles? No, of course she does. She's human. But I think part of leaving that relationship and starting a relationship with Jesus has brought a shift about her. Yeah. I'm super thankful for that. There is hope available. Thanks to your mom for being in agreement for you to come on today. We know that that we're also putting out her information as well and just how we thank her as well and you for sharing some of these things so that way other people who are listening that are going through similar things can identify with it and have that hope. And also those that are on the outside that are looking in can have a better idea of what might be going on and kind of where to step in. And another thing that I love is that the Lord was able to provide you with community and brothers and sisters in Christ along your journey, different families. He was able to add to your life without taking away from the relationship you have with your mom and with your family. And you're able to 
enjoy the blessings of and the gifts that these families can provide that the Lord has set up for you to receive without diminishing the value of the relationship you have with your mom or the importance that they had or taking away that she's your mom, but just how wonderful is that, that the Lord knows exactly what you need. And isn't that the way it's supposed to be? We're supposed to have community. Our family can't in any circumstance, provide 100% for all of our needs anyway, we're supposed to have brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think your story is an example of how much that can be helpful. Yes, I completely agree. When I look at the dynamics of community right now, and I live with my ministry partner, like it's a work, life, love, family balance. Krista and her husband and her kids and me, we are a family. And yet I still have my family, my nuclear family. And so, you know, it's funny because my mom will text me and ask me, how's Krista doing? And Crystal asked me, hey, when was the last time you text your mom? How is she doing? And so it is good. And God has provided in a miraculous way. And God has a particular way of providing people that have particular gifts or ways they can pour into you that maybe someone else can't and vice versa and how he just has just does such a wonderful job of just fitting that together like a puzzle that's just wonderful that he's able to do that so would you have any advice for someone who's going through this themselves now any encouragement for them as they're walking through this journey that you had Yes. Gosh, for anyone, I would say seek help. You are the child of a addict or an abuser, you know, and you still recognize some of the lingering effects of that. Get Seek help, seek professional help, have conversations. You can ask a question of, hey, what, you know, ask your friends, hey, what do you see in me? Or, you know, my story, if people know your story, hey, do you think there could possibly be anything lingering from this season of my life. And even if they say, you know, I'm not sure, you can begin to investigate for yourself. You can get into a conversation with the Lord, pray about it, ask the Lord to begin to reveal things to you that might still need to be healed in your heart. Seek out a therapist or a a potential group where you can learn more about the impact of addiction on children, but also the impacts of addiction on adults who are the adult children of addicts. It's not necessarily our fault. Some of the things or situations we find ourselves in as children, but as an adult, it is our responsibility to make sure that we can heal from those things so that we aren't impacting other people because of the wounds that are not healed in our own hearts. Absolutely. That's 100% correct. A lot of times our family is responsible for us when we're little, but we're responsible for ourselves as we get older. And one of the blessings of boundaries and how we operate and all those things, not necessarily being genetic or genetic at all, it was learned. And so we can relearn those things. And so as we walk into our adulthood, even if we have patterns that we learned as children, we can relearn those things and practice a new way. And if you don't get that healing, we just recreate that in the relationships that we take on as we get older until we start fixing it. So that's super important. Speaking of all these things, I would love to bring some resources that I'm sure you probably know all of them, Monique, because you were in the social service fields before, maybe I've utilized them, but you might want to check that out, everybody who's listening or who's watching, because these can be so helpful. There's one particular organization called Adult Children of Alcoholics. Children who grow up in a home with alcoholism tend to have very similar traits as they get older. There's specific traits that you can go on their website, you can download the list of all the different traits. Some of them include things like being people-pleasing, seeking approval, codependent type behaviors, which is so common that caregiving 
aspect, the extra empathy, difficulty setting boundaries, stuffing feelings, identity issues that come up, sometimes developing addictive behaviors or finding partners yourselves who do harsh self-judgment, recreating situations where we're feeling rejected, all those kind of things. They're, they're very similar for adult children of alcoholics, and that can extend to those who have other addictions in their home. And they have also included in their organization included families that are dealing with dysfunction. So that can include people who have personality disorders, which you find very similar traits for somebody who has addictions in the home and somebody who has personality disorders in the home. Those children have very similar traits sometimes. You can check out their website at adultchildren.org. That's a 12-step program, kind of anonymous meeting, kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, CA, things like that. Um, and speaking of Alcoholics Anonymous, there is a program called Al-Anon, which some of you might have heard about, which is for family members. It's not specifically just for adult children that grow up in that home. It's for anybody in the family. There's Alateen and Al-Anon. Their website is al-anon-org. Finally, there's also Naranon. So there's Narcotics Anonymous for those that have had the addictions themselves. And then for the family members, whether you're the child or another family member, there's Naranon, which is nar-anon.org. All of those are really 12-step type meetings. I believe that there are Christian groups within that. Overall, as a group, they'll say that there's a higher being. They do believe in God, but it's not always Jesus Christ. So I do believe that each of those organizations have specific groups that are for Christian believers, specifically about Jesus Christ. But you can check that out on their websites. After those resources, I'd like to hear just one more question. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement for someone who might be listening and watching and they're realizing, hey, Actually, I might be the culprit right now. This might be me. I might be with somebody who has addictions. I might be causing this impact in my family. This might be my situation. Maybe they're starting to wake up to limitations that they may have had in addressing these things. Is there anything you might tell them to encourage them to go through what it takes to make that change? Yeah, I would say if, if you are actually the addict, I would say get help. If you are the spouse of an addict, I would say get help. What help looks like will be different whether you are the addict or the spouse. I would say remember that protecting your kids should be the highest priority. That comes from me having lived through it, having been the stepchild of an addict and having also lived with my mom who was not an addict, but protecting the, the children should be the highest priority because they don't have the option to leave. If you are with an active addict, remembering that they don't get the choice to up and leave. They don't get the choice to, you know, often have say in what happens or what doesn't happen. So yes, I would say the answer, my answer would be get help, whether you are the addict or whether you are the spouse of an addict, because only when you start with the first step of help, does anything else really become possible? That can look like going to a 12 step. That can look like going to your church leadership and having conversations that can look like getting into counseling. Help can look many different ways, but you do need help that is outside of yourself because th this is something that you cannot do by yourself. And a reminder to everyone that just like your book Reconciled, right, which everybody needs to run out and go get right now, that relationships typically can be reconciled when somebody takes the right course of action, when they're able to validate somebody else's feelings, when they're able to get that growth and change, when forgiveness happens, because now you know the Lord, a lot of times those relationships can be reconciled and you can have 
a positive relationship even after all of this? I would say yes. I think that that road may not be easy, um, depending on the level of destruction that's been created within the relationship. My hope and prayer would be that reconciliation would be possible. I would say that while forgiveness is also possible and available, there also has to be a recognition of wrongs done. So we don't want to just continuously blanketly, you know, just offer forgiveness, 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 and the other person just continue to destroy, destroy, destroy. You know, how do we do that responsibly where there is is a recognition of, hey, I can't participate this way because this is destructive. And that's a great reminder that forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have no boundaries or allow somebody to repeatedly offend. So now if we jump into our scripture section, do you have any scriptures that you brought today that might pertain to what we discussed today that would be helpful for everyone to hear? Pertaining specifically to this, I I hope so. It might be a roundabout kind of way. It's okay. All scripture is good. There it is. 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's just a good reminder that a relationship with God is transformative when we submit our will to his, when we get into discipleship, when we have relationship with other believers, when we're in prayer, when we're in the word, the process of, you know, becoming a new creation is definitely a process. And yet it is something that is also promised to us that the old has gone. While there is a part of us where the old has gone, there is also a part of us where my mind needs to constantly be renewed. I do have to work to a a certain degree, um, not for my salvation, but in this process, this process will be work. And so it's an encouragement to the addict, the person who may be struggling with addiction, that God doesn't want to just leave you in your addiction. He has said in his word that there is a way in which the old can go and the new has come. But there is also a level of work that needs to go with that too. It's not like just this magical prayer or this magical word that we recite. No, God has made a promise and yet we have to step into it through the renewing of our mind, through receiving outside help, professional help and things like that. And I would say to family members, to spouses, to kids, the same is true for us. We also have a responsibility in walking into what God has for us. It does take work. He does have a transformation available to me, but that also will come as I am healed. It it comes as I seek out professional help. It comes as I get into the word and get into prayer and have community surrounding me that I can serve and that can also support me. And speaking of transformation, a scripture that I brought was Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That transformation is so important and it is possible. And when we are, have our mind renewed, whether we're the addict, the parent, or the child, when we are renewed, we can have that discernment and know what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Also, in Psalms 147.31, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I think it's so important because there's so many wounds that come out of these families when, as we're getting older, that can be closed up, but because the Lord promises he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And lastly, John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Even if things were a little shaky in regards to how we received love and who we received love from and how that all happened and whether it went well or not, we can still love because he first loved us. Amen. We have the love of Christ. We can love others. What would be one thing that you would have everybody to take away 
if they could only remember this one thing. They've heard everything we've said and everything that you have said, but you wanted them to remember this one thing. What would that be? Yes. Um, I would say to the person who was in relation or relationship with an addict, I would say to remember that the addict is also an image bearer. They bear the Imago Dei, the image of God, and they also need the love of Jesus. They also need hope that many of us as Christians, we have. And then I would say for the person, you know, in relation to themselves, as someone who is a child of God, there is a new level of restoration, a new level of transformation that is available. Continue to pursue that, pursue that in prayer, pursue that in community, pursue that in your relationships with your leaders at church, pursue that in counseling. Don't stop short just thinking, well, I was the, the kid or the spouse or you know whatever of an addict and this is all, God doesn't have anything else for me because that's not true. Amen. Thank you so much, Monique, for coming on today. We are very blessed for having you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for being so honest and real. We really appreciate that. It's time to get rid of all the facades. This is real life for many people. And that transformation and what God can do is also real. And so we really appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you to all the listeners and to the viewers that for listening and watching our episode today. We really appreciate your support. We hope that you got benefit out of today. And if you did, please give us a like and subscribe. We really appreciate it and it will help motivate us to keep on going. And feel free to tell your family and friends about our show. We are very excited about that. Don't forget that we are on most podcast platforms. So check us out there and also follow us on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube because you'll find some things on there that you won't find on our podcast platforms, which it would be at Rooted and Edified. Monique, would you close us out in prayer? Yeah, definitely. Father, I thank you so much for your grace. Um, I thank you for, gosh, just um, your love and your hand of protection that's on um, all of us, God, I thank you that, um, you know, for the one who is the addict, there is hope. And for the, the family and those in connection with the addict, there is also hope, but that hope only comes through Jesus. So father, I pray that those watching, if, um, any are not, um, in relationship with you, if any have not understood you to be their Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that um, they would do so, that they would um, come to a place of understanding that you are the one true God. And Father, for those who do know you as their Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that they would continue to, to search the scriptures, to see what your word says, um, and to get a, a true understanding of the scriptures. Father, may we support one another as family within the body of Christ, and may we continue to walk together in the hope that you give us in your holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, viewers and listeners, we'll see you later. Ciao. Bye.